Where am I? Good morning. I'm Judith Lay, welcoming you to Praise, the programme that connects faith and daily life. If the shops and TV adverts are anything to go by, I think the world started preparing for Christmas sometime in October. But on the church calendar, it's today that marks the start of Advent, the four weeks of December when the church asks us to prepare for the great feast of Christmas in a way that doesn't involve any material things. Advent is the Latin word for coming, and there are three meanings of coming that Christians think about in Advent. The first happened about 2,000 years ago when Jesus came into the world as a baby, lived as a man and died in order to open up to us the way to an everlasting life. Christians believe that there will be another coming one day when Jesus returns not as a baby but as a king with a kingdom that has no end. But there's yet another coming and it's happening now. In all the noise and busyness that surrounds Christmas, Jesus wants to come quietly into our lives with gifts that are free and last forever. Gifts of love, joy, peace and hope. And they come like a candle's flickering flame, driving out the darkness and showing us something wonderful. Like a candle flame, flickering small in our darkness, uncreated light, shines through infant eyes. Shines through 
Kendrick's Candle Song, and we'll have lots of great Advent hymns and choruses over the coming weeks. In fact, there's a traditional Advent hymn a bit later in the programme. But now it's time to meet my guest today, a recent visitor to the island, Methodist Minister Reverend Christopher Foxon. And if the name, and indeed the voice when you hear it, sound a bit familiar, don't be surprised, because Reverend Christopher has a brother on the island, Andrew Foxon, and Andrew and his wife Jane are very involved in the life of the Methodist Church in the south of the island. Reverend Chris was on the island recently at the invitation of the Island Spirituality Network to talk about his work, first as a teacher of religious education and latterly as a lecturer training the next generations of religious educators. The title of his talk was The Questions Young People Ask and he'll be sharing with us some of that talk. But first, I wondered what had shaped his faith journey, and perhaps who had answered his questions when he was growing up. My father was a Methodist minister, so you were brought up with that as part of the family tradition. But I also have to pay testimony to him, because he wasn't a strict, you-will-go-to-church Father, it was a very liberal, insightful background where you were allowed to do your own exploration of faith. I I think my father had seen in his colleagues that ministers' children go one way or the other, but it's two extremes. And he's very fortunate that both his sons are (laughs) church-connected. Let me add one thing. I had one day of revolution when I announced to my parents I was not going to go to church. And I would be 10 years old, which is the average correct age still for refusing to go to church. And my very brave mother and father said, right, you can stay at home on your own. But it was only once that I sat at home bored. It wouldn't work now because, of course, now there would be distraction. There would be television. There would be computer games. But I'm so old. (laughs) None of this stuff existed. I'd always wanted to be a teacher and had started doing teacher training, the the Bachelor of Education degree in Glasgow University. And that sucked me in the happy teaching direction. The interesting thing was that my mother insisted that I should be trained as a teacher of physics and maths, because that was where the future was. But Glasgow University at that point required you to do an arts subject as well. And on the list of available arts subjects was something called Principles of Religion. I was quite happy in church. Maybe my father would be able to help me with anything I got stuck with. So I did Principles of Religion, which then sucked me into the whole possibilities, questions of religion. Just excited me. At the same time, I also wondered, was I being called to the ministry? and had candidated in our denomination as a minister, been accepted, but then was called to London to discuss my future. And their argument was that I might be more used to the church as a full-time something else and a minister, because I would bring two aspects. So that was my plan. It didn't quite work out like that because they then removed that kind of ministry for about 20 years. But I was happy teaching and still hanging around church and actually ended up a church organist. Let's just go to to the talk that you've given to the Spirituality Network. Your topic that you chose, the questions that young people ask. And Chris, could you give us an idea of the things that you were talking about? Part of it had to be 
how we got to ask the question. The, the religious education background from which I come was learn about faith, ask questions. But the, the Scottish teaching of religious education includes something called personal search. And it assumes that every individual is on a personal search and therefore asks big questions. Now, when we were training teachers, we were convinced that you know, students should be trained to deal with children's ultimate questions. But what are the ultimate questions that children ask? We thought we knew as teachers, or oh, kids will ask about this and that, but do they? And so we did some actual research and we went out and talked to children, both in primary school and secondary school. And actually, out of interest, also some students, undergraduates and graduates, and said, what are your big unanswered questions? And it was fascinating seeing what that list of big unanswered questions is. The most asked question, almost 16%, what happens when I die? And that was coming from primary school children, right through secondary school children, to graduates who had degrees in theology. Their big unanswered question is still, what happens when I die? And that fascinates me. Watch like mad if children ask questions about death. Because if I'm saying 15% of questions are about death, then inevitably a child is going to turn to a teacher, if they trust them, and say, what happens when I die? But what I also said very, very clearly is, don't answer that question. You have to do something else first. And what I also said was, what would Jesus have done? Because Jesus was a superb communicator. When people asked him a question, he always asked another question first. And so if a child comes to me and says, what happens when I die? I'm going to have to ask, why are you asking that question? Because it might be the goldfish that's died, but it might be granny or it might be a parent, or it could be the fact that the child has been told that they have a terminal illness. But that changes completely the answer that I'm going to explore with the children. It says something about human arrogance, that if you say to me what happens when we die, that I tell you my belief. My first close experience with death was when my grandma died mm. and I was about 12. Yes. And ah, I yes, was yes. not allowed to go to the funeral. I heard it all being planned. My grandma died very yes, suddenly. Yes. It was all planned and I was told, you're too young to go. Yes. And so I sat at home with another member of the family who stayed home with me in a cloud of mystery. Which doesn't allow you to grow as a person either. You know, and, and the educationalist in me says, you have to be allowed to express what you're thinking and how you're feeling to then be able to move on and deal with and handle. I remember when I was teaching, one of my work colleagues had to go to a funeral, which her brother had had to organise. And he had no idea what ever happened at a funeral because his parents had said, you're not going to funerals, you don't go to funerals. You need to to learn what goes on. If I get two children saying, I believe that you're reincarnated, and the other one says, no, I don't believe that, I think something else happens, it's that dialogue that allows us to explore what we actually are comfortable with. And that's the word, 
being comfortable because yes. that is the ultimate aim of a, of a question, to make the person comfortable oh, at yes. the end yes. of it. And, and comfort may change at various points <laughs> in life because what makes me comfortable when I was younger and now and later is, is the biggest mistake in religion and in education is that I force you and I say, this is right, this is what you've got to believe. Because if it doesn't fit with your questions, you'll dismiss it. We deliberately make it simple to suit our own package. Three people came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And to each of these three people, after conversation, Jesus said something different. To one, he said, love your neighbours yourself. And that gave rise to the story of the Good Samaritan. To another one, he said, you must be born again, which, of course, gives rise to a conversation about can I enter my mother's womb again? But that, that's a different issue. And to the third, he said, go and sell all you have and give it to the poor. And it's fascinated me looking at the church, which is very good at saying you've got to love your neighbor. And some branches of the church tell us we've got to be born again. But some branches of the church aren't saying, go and sell all you have and give it to the poor. We tend to take the answer that we quite like. But it also means that Jesus has said different things to different people. Most of us at some point in our life need to say, I need to start again. You know, it's not, I don't have to constantly keep starting again. Sometimes I just need to rethink. Yes, if I have got totally distracted with wealth, or affluence at some kind of line, or you know what Jesus says else, you cannot serve two masters, you cannot serve money and God. If I've got the wrong focus at some point, then yeah, okay, go and sell all you have and give to the poor. But it may well be that I'm just not good at relating to other people, so go and love like your neighbor. You, we've got to say, okay, what, what do I need? What were the other things that you discovered? Some of the questions were questions about ethics. But most children were fairly comfortable with ethics. There were some questions about science and religion, but it depended. That tended to come as children got older and as folk had started to expose them to the idea that science and religion contradict each other. Now, Judith, I just read your face. You don't see that as a problem. I don't see that as a problem. And actually, most children don't see it as a problem until people try to teach them that science and religion don't agree. And if you are taught about that at the right time, which is basically that science is a how question and religion is a who or why question, when we look at creation, who created, why did they create, how did they create, are all different kinds of questions. The Bible is an interesting book because I think it answers the who and sometimes why or why did things go wrong. If we're looking at the creation story, who made? God made. How is interesting, but it's not important. Why isn't the world good? And the answer is because human beings messed it up. And kids understand that. But usually when folk are saying science or religion, that's when the debate comes in there. There are also questions about how do we know what's real? Those kind of adolescent questions about am I being deceived by things? Because sometimes we classified that as reality. They'd also be fascinating. Is there life on other planets? There was a clear sense of awareness of our duty to creation. 
and our duty to care for other people. But you still get all the odd questions like, why is God always understood as a man? The sexism of society was something that children challenged regularly. Sometimes they asked questions about their own future. One of the questions that will always stick in my mind was, who will be the next one in my family to die? Now, I know that's going back to the death thing, but that actually reflects an individual child's experience. Obviously, they've had a series of deaths and the child is disturbed. And it's about reflecting on life. We, as human beings, need to think about what we've had and what we've lost and all of that. But don't you think, Chris, that this is the huge value of religious education, that it provides a safe space to ask these questions, to be given the opportunity to work things through in a way that you can't do in any other subject. You can't do this in a geography lesson or history or maths or whatever. And Judith, I think you've hit on what what was my teaching experience was the important thing. Yes, I had pupils who were doing certificate exams, like because we were in Scotland standard grade or higher exams. But all children were required to do at least one period a week of religious education in the secondary school that I taught. And the beauty of that was there was for them no exam at the end. And so they could put away all those worries. I've been telling some folk recently that one of my favourite experiences was when the head of chemistry came into the staff room one day to complain furiously about what these children had been doing in religious education because they wouldn't stop talking about the issues all the way through the chemistry lesson. And I was supposed to feel guilty about that. And as your smile shows, I did not. I thought, that's fine. You know, no. Children need the freedom to explore. They benefit from being able to bounce ideas off each other in a controlled and safe environment. And that was what the religious education teacher was there doing. And I would argue that that reflects all religious traditions anyway, because they are safe spaces where you explore what are your points of value and how you live with your fellow human being. And what I loved once, when I was teaching, I had a, a, a boy in a class who, who came from a particularly devout Muslim tradition. And if he was disagreeing with, say, some of the Christians in the class, he would call me in to support his argument because he knew my job was to be neutral and support them all. And that was a great privilege. But you used the phrase safe space a moment ago. One of the youth workers that I know was had just been reading some research. And she said that modern research has shown that most children who leave churches at the moment leave because they cannot find a safe space to ask questions. That means that an awful lot of children are going along to church and then when they start to want to ask questions, they don't feel that they'll be accepted. Part of life is doubt and questioning. You've got to be supported in your questioning. And if children are leaving churches because they're not allowed to ask questions, something's well wrong. It is. I'm remembering an incident, again, which I've quoted to some people since I came to the island. I have now started my 70th year. I had been sitting in the hairdresser's chair and my hairdresser lady, she said, Chris, 
You used to be a teacher in a secondary school, she said. Then you worked in a college of education training teachers. And for most of that, you've also been a minister. Now that you're old enough to have retired, which do you miss most? Now, that was interesting. It certainly shut me up, which may well have been what she was trying to do. Ministers never retire, as I'm sure any minister who's listening will happily tell you. No, you're always there. Okay, your responsibilities will change a bit. But I sat and thought and thought and thought and then came up with the answer, I missed teaching children. And when she said, why was that? I said, because they keep me alive. They make me ask questions. I will have come to conclusions that I'm comfortable with. But they'll say, ah, but have you not thought about? They'll challenge your thinking. That was the exciting time. And we all benefit from that.
Huddersfield Choral Society and a stirring version of the Advent hymn, Hills of the North Rejoice. And before that, I was talking with Methodist minister and retired teacher, Reverend Christopher Foxon, about the questions that young people ask. Now, a question for you. Where do you stand on the subject of Christmas cards? I'm afraid you're going to get me in bar humbug mode here. First of all, my wife always presents me with a box of about 400 Christmas cards that we've got to send out. I'm sure I don't know 400 people, and I certainly can't think of 400 people I like. And then, the worst of all, round-robin letters, where people basically sit and boast how much more wonderful than my children their children are. And it's just such a depressing thing. I am a guilty purveyor of (laughs) round-robin Christmas letters. No, actually, I... I like to try and be a little bit different and and also and sort of go where the others are not and miss the rush kind of thing, so I tend to leave it till January. I just feel I've got, yeah, it's a bit more chilled. I can actually report on what Christmas was like maybe as well. And you just think, right, it's going to arrive on someone's doorstep and not be buried by lots of others. It'll hopefully get read. I want to put in a good word for the round robin letter because I really enjoy getting letters from friends. It's maybe because I've got such good friends and it's fantastic to hear every year from the families that you never meet at any other time, people that we've known well and sadly don't see and don't have any contact with because they live in some other part of the country. And in these Facebook days, it's perhaps a slightly different matter, but even so, it's great to get the the letters and find out what everybody's up to. I will say this about Christmas cards, I... I do like them. I know that a lot of people complain about writing them and and say, you know, this is pointless. Why are we doing this? Look, it's a wave. It's it's saying hello to someone. It's saying, I remember you. Yes, I probably have liked something that you said or shared on Facebook, but here is a, a kind of more of a gesture. I've gone to the trouble of getting the card and the stamp. We've been making our own Christmas cards. This year we're using a Wordle and we've taken the nativity story from Luke chapter 2 and changed it into Wordle. A Wordle is a word cloud where the size of the word reflects the frequency of which the word appears in the passage. And the biggest word, I think, is child, which is appropriate for a nativity story. The man credited with inventing the first commercial Christmas card back in 1843 was a British civil servant, Sir Henry Cole. It was designed initially as a way to encourage ordinary people to use the recently established uniform penny post. This guaranteed carriage and delivery of a letter between any two places in the United Kingdom, irrespective of the distance between them, for just one old penny. Some people nowadays fear that email and Facebook greetings may supplant the traditional card. But there's no sign of it so far. It seems that we love to send and receive Christmas cards just as much as our Victorian ancestors did. This Christmas... We pray for those who long for news of friends and family, but have lost touch over the years. And for all who befriend the lonely at this time.
And that's all we've time for on Praise today. Thank you to my special guest, Reverend Chris Foxon, and to our friends at GRF Christian Radio for their thoughts about Christmas cards. Thank you for listening to this week's Praise podcast. There's a new Praise podcast available every Sunday morning. You can subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify via the Manx Radio smartphone app or at manxradio.com. The Praise blog is where you'll find our full church notice board, alongside details of everything that we've talked about on today's programme. Again, go to manxradio.com, on the homepage, click on air, and on the drop-down menu, follow the link for blogs. So, till we meet again, this is Judith saying thank you for your company, and I wish you, and those you love, every blessing in the days ahead. Station Manx Ra-